Hello and welcome to this week's Starsman Podcast with me, James York, and... Ted Knutson. We're kind of in, um... It's kind of a transfers podcast a bit, isn't it, Ted? But we've got all sorts to talk about, so... We've got some cool projects. Yeah. I have a question for you. Are you Marty McFly? I think you are. I think I'm Doc Brown today. (laughs) (laughs) We're not always going to talk about movies, but this is, you know, it ties back into last week and it ties back into our cool new project that debuted today. Yeah. I like the Back to the Future films. Who doesn't like the Back to the Future films? Well, there's a slightly dodgy storyline about his mother falling for him in the first one, but it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might not. Ah, the 80s. <laughs> yeah, these are kids' films. As I was thinking about the Goonies, the Goonies yesterday, I don't know why it came to my mind. Uh, and they always get, usually get bits of swearing in these films. They're kind of like yeah. PG plus kind of films and stuff. Nowadays, with, Cor- with Corey Feldman added. Yeah, yeah nowadays they'd be. Uh, they would be, you know, they'd take all the swearing out and sanitise them entirely, but I quite... Goonies never die. James, shame, we know your name. I used to love that film. <laughs> Six shoes. <laughs> so good. Oh my God, so the, the kid that, that played um, that played Data in that, uh, he's, I think he's Chinese, I'm not 100%, um, but he also played Short Round in uh, James, uh, not James Bond, uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah. And he later went on to work as uh, like a chemical scientist at a pharmaceuticals company that I worked with at, like at the right. same time. But he also he also did like stunt coordinating during I don't know if he was like part time or, or whatever. It's quite interesting. But uh, no time for love, Doctor Jones. We've got a podcast to do. An actual ch- uh, actually, uh, we've probably said this before. Actual chunk. A guy called Jeff. I can't remember his surname off the yes. top of my head. Oh my god! I forgot about Chunk. It's brilliant. He actually uh, he, he liked a stats bomb post once, and I was like, "Oh my god!" It's actual Chunk from the Goonies. Yeah, he, he followed the the site for a while and stuff. <laughs> so if you if you're out there, thank you very much for your. Uh, I don't know if you listen to our podcast. If you know Chunk, you know, tell him we love him. I still do the truffle shuffle with my kids every once in a while just to make them laugh. So fun. Chunk's confession in that film is just hilarious. Anyway, well, so we're going to flash back today. We're not going to the the eighties. We're going back to nineteen ninety nine quickly. Nineteen ninety nine, because uh, we've we've set up this uh, little little project, um, and the Independent have uh, gladly teamed up with us uh, to write a few write a handful of articles on Man United's treble season. And what have we done, Ted? We've collected some data for some old games. Well, James deserves most of the credit for this one, I think, because I think you originally pitched it as uh, we had a different project of one that we're still not allowed to talk about, uh, but we basically went to the past and uh, created a whole bunch of data uh, in, in the modern time. And so James was like, well, we could do that for a number of things. What's coming up that's interesting? And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, the treble. The yeah. treble is coming up. Despite the fact that neither one of us are Manchester United fans, no. we both remember the treble very vividly. <laughs> and your piece, well, your combined piece, James did uh, the oversight on this, but um, it's on the independent, and it was a really cool piece, actually, uh, was about a fortuitous game, slightly, uh, between Manchester United and Arsenal, and probably one of the toughest games they had that season in the FA Cup semifinal. Yeah, no, that was that was a great game. I remember it at the time. Everyone remembers it. It's an absolute classic game. But um, uh, yeah, Matt Cr- Crickley at the Independent has written written up uh, the you know the kind of data breakdown of that game for us. And he's got a couple more games coming to, for the uh, the rest of the week tomorrow and Friday. I won't spoil which games he's going to review, but I think you can probably guess one of them. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, gig gig semi final is just. Just an absolute epic game, you know. I think one of the surprising parts that came out of this for me was like Giggs is ripped through to the defence, which is highly unlikely. You know, you won't see a goal like it again. And the XG on his shot because it's really quite wide, even you know when he's kind of bombing through, he's still at a good pace. It's still like 0.07. It's really like kind of low probability shot because he's so wide. But yes, it's so hard, so true, and it just flies in him over David Seaman. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, an absolute one of the probably FA Cup's great goals, certainly in the top three, I think, and that really set United on the on the way to their their treble that season. I mean, that that, that was that was key. You know, Arsenal missed a penalty in, in stoppage time um, to you know that would have taken them through and spoiled everything. Um, Deep sigh. <laughs> I have Arsenal fans in my mention today telling telling he's too soon. I was like, <laughs> 
<laughs> this is literally a generation ago, 20 years. Well, the pain from that game apparently lives on. It's kind of fun. I'll tell you what, I spent some time this morning like uh, looking at the data from this game because Roy, Roy Keane played in that and he, he missed some time later in that season. And I was thinking, is there anything I can like uh, <laughs> grab about Roy Keane just to say, like, you know, his passing was bad or you know, he didn't put his foot in? Or... <laughs> Are you trying to get on the, you know, you're like trying to generate some extra media steam off of Roy Keane? <laughs> yeah, it was good. I think it's he had 80% passing in that game, which is, is it was good, actually quite good. This is one of the for the game. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the um, like takeaways I've got from from some of the, from looking at the date for these games is like the passing percentages aren't high at all. They're really quite like you know low seventies for you know really quite high quality teams. So we kind of we're, we're kind of normalised to expecting you know top teams now in 2019 to like complete at 80 plus 85 play, you know percent of their passes and in these kind of like competitive games they weren't like hard hitting like kind of pressurey games but um you know the the passing percentages were comparatively low um to what we see nowadays and shot locations Ted that was an interesting one <laughs> so so how many shots were there in this match like, like 43 it's extra time so <laughs> still it's like 43 shots so. that's a lot of shots I think the, the average in a Premier League match these days is about 25 yeah yeah and it's I, football has really changed over the 20 years and you go back and you watch these games and you look at the data alongside of it which really helps you and you just see like some really different things and mm. the question is you know has football changed because of like the tactical uh, innovations, you know, the fact that, that Pep's group has done so well and some of the, the German, um, you know, tactical innovations that have come along have really substantially changed how teams defend. I think the Portuguese actually too. So to be fair to like the Portuguese and Italian schools, that middle block uh, or the high press are, are seem to be like almost more standard than a traditional sort of deeper block English style uh, football. And a lot of that comes off of the back of success. It didn't it's, it's an evolutionary thing. Like it's survival of the fittest. And so when other teams do well off of the back of this type of style, you know, more teams will copy them and the teams that don't do well die out. Uh, but I feel like, you know, looking at this table, uh, when we do public stuff or when our stuff gets out into more mainstream, like we always get people in mentions arguing about expected goals and this and that and the other thing. And you know, my responses often depend on how busy I am that day and whether I'm particularly grumpy or not. <laughs> so, so if you're at the end of that, you know, somewhat apologize. But also, like, it's not the first time that I've done this. We're like six years down the road of having these very similar arguments when people come across it. And, uh, and so I have a little less tolerance for people who don't even want to read about all of the research that's out there and just want to argue their general goofy opinion, uh, create extreme straw men examples. So looking back at the table, though, it is very, very interesting to look back at this 1998-99 Premier League season. It's the same as same as ever. Man United won it. Arsenal <laughs> second, Chelsea third. Yeah, it's just, Chelsea third. This is just you know same old. Man same United old. have won all those titles recently. So. <laughs> the big teams. Yeah, lots of draws, isn't it? I, I think you know, 79 points took the title that year. 78 for Arsenal, Chelsea the third with 75. They only lost three, four, and three games um, each. Arsenal's defense was insane. They had like Arsenal <laughs> gave up 17 goals in 38 <laughs> matches, which is bonkers. But it also kind of probably indicates it was boring as hell for a lot of the time. Yeah, we still 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 kind of 90s football, like a bit of the. You know, not quite, not quite the free flowing attacks as we, we see, see later on. I think. So United won the title by one point that season, but it was seventy nine points to seventy eight, mm. and the goal difference was plus forty three versus forty two. Um, you know, United, I think their their stat line looks more normal, like eighty goals scored, uh, thirty seven against. But like, it doesn't look like City, and this is, I think, one of the things that that we've seen as just like a huge change. One of the reasons why Liverpool and Manchester City are so far ahead of the pack right now is like they tactically they execute really well. And also, you know, the the influx of foreign players and managers to the Premier League has made it a lot stronger. But it's stronger all the way down the league. So like if you look at the league now compared to to what it was, you know, anytime say 10 to 20 years ago like the players are much better and more technical the, the other coaches are better and more technical and so like if the league is stronger how is it that liverpool and manchester city have dominated so so well and they have found superior ways to play and they also have superior 
um, superior players. And the ways to play come back to the coaches. And England has much better coaches than they used to have, like, down the, the table. Um, you know, I mean, who's winning the Champions League in this period of time outside of, like, it's Bayern is in the this, the final um, yeah, you go into you've, like you've some, quite strong around this. Period. I was gonna say you go into like a lot of Italian strength, <clears throat> and that that continues into into Milan for a while. So you know, I, I think that <laughs> looking looking down at uh, at the UEFA Cup, which is what it was called back then, and not the Europa League, Leeds finished fourth and qualify for the UEFA Cup first round, <laughs> which you're like, oh man, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> West Ham finished. Fifth on 57 points with a minus seven goal differential. Liverpool somehow finished seventh on a plus 19 goal differential with 54 points. Uh, and the, like some of the manager moves here are fascinating as well, right? So David Pleat, Chris Hutton had yeah, uh, Chris Hutton, <laughs> yeah, it was like, it had a short spell as uh, and then Hodgson as well. This was Hodgson, at, um, yeah. At so Roy, Roy leaves Blackburn Rovers, gets sacked. Um, Brian Kidd, I think, comes along some point. Dave Bassett. Uh, Sacked from Nottingham Forest. Nottingham Forest finished dead last this year. Uh, hang on, there's there's more. Oh, Kenny Dalglish is a, is at Newcastle and replaced by Rude Hulett. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, like, Rude Hulett huh. on my twenty first birthday as well. He joins Newcastle. What a moment for him. <laughs> what a moment for you, George Graham as well. So so like the Leeds story. We talked a little bit about Leeds would be my choice to like. Yeah, George Graham know. went to Tottenham. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Graham goes to Tottenham and replaced by David O'Leary. Yeah, that was. And Gerard Houllier makes his first appearance, I think, in in English football at that point as well. Uh, oh yeah, no, he was co-manager, wasn't he? And then he just he took Roy Evans must go and went. All right, uh, but yeah, it was it was it was kind of like so, Man City. So are, the other two teams to finish in the in the UEFA Cup qualifying are Spurs in eleventh yeah. and Newcastle in thirteenth. This must be cup stuff, mustn't it? Yeah, because um, <laughs> Man United won the cup, so Newcastle were in the final. I think Tottenham won the, the League Cup, so that must have been how that worked. Out. Man City aren't even in this league. That was that was something I noticed. When we were looking at it. So worlds worlds have changed. Uh, Coventry City and Wimbledon are. Yeah. Yeah, well, they—I mean—they were—they were stalwarts in, in the league for like kind of the decade before that, until they finally went. You know, from the eighties kind of through the nineties, Coventry and Wimbledon were always, always thereabouts. Coventry had a really long spell in the, in, yeah. in the Premier League and you know Division One as it was before until the Sky finally, Blues until they finally uh, went. Southampton finished seventeenth in that league, which feels familiar. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Everton, Everton down in fourteenth. Apparently, there was a yeah. <laughs> Everton not seats. quite being as big and successful as they as they could be is that's probably a recurrent theme. For yeah, so I just I found it fascinating, years. and and knowing like you know the styles were different and the knowledge was was deeply different. Um, yeah, teams, even team players that are good finishers. Like I, I think Dennis Bergkamp probably does absolutely, probably some of the most amazing things I've ever seen anybody do with the ball. Uh, but you know, he's taken like seven pretty terrible shots from range, missed a penalty. You said it was the last penalty he ever took, which I found fascinating. I don't know. No, uh, Mark came up with that, so he's. I'm. I'm. Imagine he's right. I didn't. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, I didn't. I didn't come up with that myself. But yeah, I can. I can imagine it. Um, but this is also a quirky guy who would not fly. Like, yeah. definitely terrified of flying. So, yeah, that's no, kind of anxiety might have been occasionally an issue in his life. I don't know. I, mean, I didn't. I didn't actually read the his uh, his biography. I don't know if it addresses we're still, it or not. We're still firmly in four four two world as well here, and I think it's interesting because uh, one of the Man United games you got you got Blomquist uh, starting on the left and Giggs on the right, and it was almost like. I can kind of think back to that, you know, like four two three one and like inverted, um, inverted kind of attackers weren't wasn't a thing really. It was almost like, you know, we're we're trying to work things out and see what how we see how we can uh, fit people together. And uh, yeah, so seeing gigs gigs starting on the right in a four four two was quite interesting. I thought, you know, kind of. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really weird. I so I remember Henri um, kind of warping my idea of, of finishing, especially from the right. Because he had that right-footed curl, and and he would get kind of in his spot, in his sweet spot, and could just you know sort of loop it up over the goalkeeper, make it an impossible shot for him. But usually he was one v one because he was he's basically Kylian Mbappe, yeah, but but the modern marvel is so so fast. He'd be ahead of guys could could set himself uh, and shape the shot. Um, but what's interesting about the reason why I bring that that up is because there's a there's a funny 
asymmetry inside of expected goals models that almost nobody looks at and nobody has mentioned. Merrick found it initially, at least in my mind, but probably other people didn't well. Uh, we never know what happens behind the scenes. So I'm sure that like tons of people have found this over the time. It's kind of a funky artifact. But the, the inversion of forwards has then created a slight skew for expected goal finishing from the left side versus the right side. And right footers finishing on that left side have a little bit further out and the, the heat spots for like being pretty good to good shots go a little bit further right. out than they do from the left. And I think a lot of it has to do with being able to shape your body and hit that far corner with the, the curl on it. Um, but most people just mirror it because that's a natural thing to do with the model, assuming that right and left side are the same. They're not. Mm. Yeah, no, I hadn't really thought of that. I've seen like little kind of, you know, when I've made built heat maps and stuff out of like shot locations, I see little skews going, like, you know, one side or the other. Is it a data problem or not? And you realize it's a data problem in humans. They're just like way more right footers that now play on the left side than left footers who are the other way around. That's one reason why Salah is so valuable because he lets he lets Liverpool get central but has is enough two-footed that he can also go right. And that's the reason why Messi, like for his career, has just been absurdly valuable because you just, you know, you've got a left footer who is nearly t as two-footed as you want to be, but his, his left is just so dominantly good. He can go left, right. He can spin, you know, Jerome Boateng around until he, he, you know, curls himself into the ground. But uh, yeah, it's a, uh, so this is an old project. There's more to come. Uh, James, I think it's been done for most of a month, uh, but now it's seeing publication because we had to have prep time for it. So well done to James and the Independent and Ed Malian um, for uh, you know working with us on that. And he's now gone on to somewhere else new. Oh, Ed had a really cool thing. So like, you know, the expected goals argument uh, that often goes on and you have to find like riders that are interested in like the stat side that are also capable of riding, which is challenging in a lot of current football. And he had a, a really good line about it, which is basically like, you know, some writers are artists and some writers are scientists. And the ones that like expected goals tend to be more sciencey. And then the ones that that are artists and like want to think through things and paint pictures of with words and stuff like that, uh, you know, they very rarely overlap and, and they want, you know, they find expected goals to be almost anathema. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. Don't take away the artistry. Don't, but like for me, there's a lot of art that is actually like gorgeously mathematical and pattern driven, right? And I'm not uh, somebody who like knows art history very well, but I've seen a lot of this over time and I'm like, oh yeah, that's amazing. And like, you can see that there are, um, you know, it's like circles and shapes and stuff like that inside of the, the art itself. And I find that like that helps it sing to me even more, but I like regular art too. So I, I thought it was just a good line to explain kind of why there's often this divide in the press about information, which is what expected goals really is, versus you know being able to interpret what you see. The point is, we're still going to upset the purists. That will never change. We've just got to realize. Just ignore us. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I do to other people on the internet. So like, just ignore us. There's always going to be some people that are upset with their uh, status statisfying. That's not even a word, although it's quite satisfying uh, to do it all. <laughs> Marty, we need to jump back to the modern day. Yeah, we do. We've right. got things to talk about. Okay, right. What, what, what should we talk about? We've got a list of a handful of things. We're going to go transfers, but it mainly is, there seems to be small kind of manager issues and kind of like some kind of uh, structural issues. We're not going to... Um, we're not going to get into uh, kind of like Man City finances and and things like that, which have. have but kind it feels of like there's a manager go round that that is going to happen, right? So Allegri has left Juve, mm. which means that Juve's open. So who are they signing? Uh, there's like sorry stuff in the media. I don't know anything behind the scenes, but sorry stuff sort of bubbling along, saying that he might go there. But Conte has thrown his hat in the ring. As usual, uh, especially now that he's gotten his court case with Chelsea out of the way and has been given his uh, compensation there. Um, speaking of Chelsea, like skipping the manager go around for the moment. Did you see this Peter Cech director of football thing? Yeah, that seems uh, timely. I think it's the best way of putting that. <laughs> well, sure. Okay, so he's retiring, and, and about Chelsea have had a director Chelsea. of football position open for a while. Um, yeah, Mike Emmanuel, I think, was the the last one that was there. He's now at Monaco, still at Monaco, despite some some reports that said that he had left. I think he's he's definitely still there. They're safe. Well, congratulations to Monaco for a really weird season, but staying in league. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Petr Cech, um now 
apparently going to be named the director of football at Chelsea Football Club. I don't know what to think. I don't know enough about Czech to to say one way or another whether this makes sense. Like we've seen some some pretty good directors of football come out over the years. Um, you know, goalkeepers are often pretty thoughtful about the game. Um, yeah, I, it's intriguing. It just feels like a contact book role, though, doesn't it? And how can you have much of a like a contact book like kind of executive level if you've just been a goalkeeper for the last 20 years that I, I those two things don't kind of like rub along together for me but they used to because like all of your teammates would then end up in high level roles and so you just call them i can see it over time but coming straight <laughs> out of like you know literally literally chucking your gloves into the back of the net and walking walking off the pitch into the office and what His do, two greatest teammates now? are in the championship finals. That should be helpful for Chelsea. Well, that's yeah. I mean, that comes back to this or this idea, doesn't it? That um, that Lampard could be could if Sarri if Sarri did go, I I don't want Sarri to go. I quite I I I'm encouraged for his second season, even with even if a transfer ban holds. I think I think he you know he had teeth in troubles and you know getting Chelsea running how he wants hasn't been easy. But I I kind of feel like I want to see season two of this program and see how it pans out um that said i i agree i think sorry did an absolutely fine job i think that chelsea you know saddled him with a with a tough group of players for his particular style and yeah they they came out on top i thought that was interesting too that you know manchester united sorry manchester city liverpool chelsea all the top three teams in xg and then the ones that struggled you know as the season went on you know spurs kind of drug themselves across the line but the the things that we wrote earlier in the season generally seem to to come true which doesn't always happen like it's not like that there's a lot of error and variance and luck in football and, and that luck can be sustainable for up to you know 50 games in some cases so a full season doesn't really i um, definitely wrote leicester will not win the league a number of times one season <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I thought that was this year. I was like, well, you were right. Well done. Yeah, but no, but just as like, you know, the, the perfect case in point is like, the numbers are telling me that Leicester will not win the league. <laughs> that was bugging me. So I, I'm, there were two seasons historically that XG have really bugged me in England. Um, elsewhere, yeah, I think XG has had real problems in France for a long time. Um, it's one reason why we built new data for, for Statsbomb to try and see if we could sort these things out. One of them was the, the Fergie season where they won, and it just felt like they never should. So, like, the last, the 12th, was it 12-13? Yeah, yeah, it was. So that, that one, I, I've asked multiple people who made tons and tons and tons of money off of gambling, like, where did your <laughs> models have these guys? Because they probably have the most accurate models out there. And they're like, yeah, third fourth best teams like thank god all right i'm not going crazy and then lester was fifth best and and this is like a number of different gamblers professional gamblers that you know are not necessarily related but yeah anyway going all the way but going back to 12 13 i remember like you know some while afterwards there was a series of articles max odenheimer wrote one on the site i wrote one for my old blog and altman wrote one as well all to like trying to like con- just conceiving like you know how did it come together and all this kind of, all this kind of thing um, because it was, you know, at the time, Man United, it was like, how could they win a title with these metrics? I think looking through a lens of like five years, another five years on, like it feels to me like that uh, their metrics were like within the kind of realms of of you know probability that they could win a title. It wasn't quite the big surprise that perhaps it was, you know, when we were learning about like uh, you know, nascent rise of like numbers and expected goals models and sure, stuff. Sure, like a twenty percent number mm. would not have been unexpected. So one in five seasons like they would win still be able to win the title off of that. And I think that the the models underestimating um, set piece performance, which really powered uh, Ferguson's last two seasons are is something to be aware of. Um, you know the Expected goals models are built off of historic performance and different things, and you can add more uh, more factors inside of it. You have to be very careful about overfitting. But if 99% of teams at that time were really bad at um, at set pieces, and the 1% is there, like you're not going to fix the expectation for the 1% like anytime soon. Uh, so like the the model is going to underestimate their performance and their expected performance off of set pieces consistently for a very long time there. Um, I think modern models would probably be a little bit better. I don't think we're going to go back and collect 12, 13 anytime soon. But if we do, we might get them a little closer to the top of the table anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is definitely interesting to consider because, you know, I do, I, I do think that, 
having you know seen another five or six seasons on t- on top of that and how they kind of shape up and how teams you know the kind of it, the differences between what you expect to happen based on metrics and what actually happens i you know they're, they're still like a relatively outlying uh side as kind of with leicester but i, I just I don't feel it was they're, they're quite the unexplainable uh that maybe maybe people once thought but yeah I, i've diverted there we could talk about man united actually because um there's there's a the the noise in the press about their transfers is very different to um, what we've seen in recent years. You know, quite very different. Quite a star focus we've seen uh, over time. Um, perhaps less so last last summer, but you know, Alexis Sanchez, Pogba, these kind of things. And we've seen that Man United have been linked with Dan James from Swansea, uh, who's a promising young Welsh uh, kind of attacker. Uh, Longstaff from Newcastle as well has been linked with them. He's an, a young central midfielder who's been at Newcastle and kind of got in their team. I think he's quite decent. I'm uh, my my concern, not concern, but my interest around these links is is that they're kind of like I wouldn't say gamble's the wrong word, but it's it's like are these players going to be Man United players or sufficiently you know will they prosper into being good enough to be top six, top four title title challenging players? I think the jury's out on that. It's interest, but it's interesting to see them make make this kind of what looks like a a different strategy, if indeed so, it comes to be. I think it was a, an occasional strategy with with Sir Alex. Like you know, you'd see you know some some name comes up, uh, homegrown English Welsh, and they usually want to buy the best of them, right? So I definitely remember when Phil Jones was being batted about yeah. Aaron Rams Aaron Ramsey at the same time, or just you know just before then. Um, but I, I think the, the most telling thing about this is looking at the flags in their squad. Mm. And you're like, hmm, yeah, they might start to run up against homegrown issues, especially as some of these older players cycle out. That's right? a good point, yeah. I know Tottenham have been concerned about that um, with, with regards, you know, fill, filling spots in their squad, you know, rather than... I mean, they didn't sign anyone last season, but the, the talk last season and this season... Was that they'd be looking to you know looking at getting more kind of like homegrown players uh, as a as a priority purely because they had to so well not just because you have to but like who knows what happens with Brexit right uh, so like there there's still I mean we we have a lean now <laughs> a couple months ago we did not have one um, but yeah so if you if you assume that that like Smalling's 29 now uh, turns 30 in November Phil Jones 27 not even sure if he's that good. Uh, De Gea, if he's staying, is is Spanish. So you're not a, like their third goalkeeper. They brought in Lee Grant, I think, at age 36, just to like ride the bench. The classic big team strategy of the third goalkeeper. Homegrown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 a it's a niche job if you can get it. That it really is. So as, as as we move down towards more peak age players, you got Luke Shaw, Ashley Young, who's 33, turns 34 this summer, um, and these. Uh, <laughs> I'm digging here. Uh, Scott McTominay. It's probably uh, this probably explains the retention of some of these guys over Lingard over long and Rashford. Of time, you know, I know. Yeah, Lingard and Rashford are, are there as well, and I think Andreas Pereira probably counts because I'm pretty sure that he came out of their academy at the right time. Pogba might now, count, mightn't he? Because he came through that through that money. Right? I don't who know. Might? Pogba. He came through. Ooh, came, that's right. Actually, yeah. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah, easy to forget that. But um, but it was like when Cesc came back and he was homegrown. Yeah. And you're like, he gets a bonus really? for that. <laughs> like Eric Dyer. I don't think Eric Dyer is homegrown because he was in Portugal for a few years of, uh, when he was when he was coming through. It's one of those odd ones. But yeah, there's the occasional thing. But I think uh, you've hit on something quite relevant there, though. You know, why is Phil Jones still part of this squad? Why is um, Ashley Young still part of this squad and, and potentially will be in the future? Um, if it's a coin flip between you know, f- fourth choice kind of centre backs, or or third. To who's going to be your backup right back going forward? Yeah, maybe you keep these guys in um, if you can work the contracts, and they're already probably signed up. And but they're, but they're homegrown. That's you know going to be a huge factor. Someone like Scott McTominay, you know, he's he's come into the squad. You're probably going to keep him around the squad, even if you're not sure whether he's going to be good enough long term. He's a squad man, and he's he's probably homegrown as well, I presume. Yeah, it's just always something to to kind of be aware of when you see some weird things that happen um, with like there's there's still a premium despite the fact that the Premier League is like the money's just everywhere. There's still a premium on the best 
homegrown players. Mm. And they don't have to be English necessarily, but they do have to be homegrown. And there's a different set of criteria for that. And it warps the transfer market sometimes a little and sometimes in really unexpected ways. Like Danny Drinkwater just sort of appearing on Chelsea's squad. You're like, well, we need a depth player. Ross Barkley, you know, you're buying English players that are nearly good enough that can probably at least sit your bench and play, say, 40% of your minutes. Uh, Drinkwater, that didn't happen. Uh, Barkley, you know, sometimes does. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Dan James is not good enough for Man United right now. Um, you know, one to two years time, possibly. Uh, maybe playing some cup matches. But, like, you know, there's some sense there. If Sean Longstaff is, is like, legit good, you know, that's one. Like, Declan Rice's name will be mentioned. Centre-back's names will be mentioned because, you know, you can't if you can't afford the best English attackers, and there are a lot of them, oddly enough. So like those those English academy kids that are coming out. Like if you grab Tammy Abraham, he's actually like has a premium on him. If he, even if you think he's the second striker in your team, you know he's he's English homegrown for forever, and so like that's good enough, right? We can flip this back to Chelsea quickly as well because that's gen- genuinely an issue with a potential transfer ban coming. Um, you know, are these um, are these players now going to get their um, get their chance that we, we haven't we haven't seen and you know we've expected it. There's it's been this desire for ages like go on Chelsea just you know try and try and integrate your your youngins a little bit better and it's a real shame that Loftus Cheek and um, Hudson Adoy have both had you know Achilles. That's awful, horrible. Like, those, those guys were definitely playing next year. They, yeah, and yeah. Suddenly you're they're probably out for if not the whole season. You know, at least half plus some some potential yeah. recovery time uh, if everything goes right. Real tough break that they you know that's happened that's happened to them you know just at this moment and both of them at the same time. But Drinkwater's probably got another season at Chelsea off the back of this just because he's <sighs> uh, because he's <laughs> homegrown. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, because they've got all these like someone like Mason Mount. He's had a you know a decent season at uh, Derby. You know where 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 does he go next? Abraham's is obviously the other big example as well you know they're both they're both at a stage where you can you could see them being part of a um, part of a top six squad you know even if they're not getting loads of minutes you don't want to stifle them so that you know they're never on the pitch kind of thing however you know you can probably you know argue a case that their next their next slot should be a premier league team um is it chelsea's bench or is it a different another you know yet another loan to um. Yeah, to a Premier League team. I mean, if Villa went up, would um, Abraham go back there for another season? Maybe. I suppose that would be a kind of uh, uh, that would be a solution to, you know, kind of getting him into the Premier League. Um, mm. But yeah, it, it, it's a new situation. You know, without uh, this transfer ban, you just presume that Chelsea would continue to, you know, bring in three, four players. Uh, first teamers and the kind of lone army would continue to trudge along, uh, looking to <laughs> looking to f- find a find a place to lay their hat. So one of the things that we learned, like Nikos and I learned at at Brentford, that we didn't know going in, and so we had to had to sometimes painfully learn it. Was was basically if you're going to buy international players, you should be buying the really top tier ones. Um, like even even at Brentford's level, like whatever the like you want to get starters off of international players mm. because you can fill the rest of your squad with sort of good enough uh, domestic homegrowns and not run up against the homegrown problem. And for Brentford, like who didn't really have much of an academy and who whose academy kind of disappeared along the way, like that was a serious concern to us. Um, you know, we need to find younger guys on a free like uh, John Egan uh, or or Rick. Uh, Romain Sawyers like so league one guys that were good enough that are coming out on a free that also like met the homegrown rules you're like all right these are absolutely fine even if they're not your starters they they kind of fill out your squad with homegrown guys and then you you poach the premium ones from externally what you don't want to do is kind of have a guy uh, from a different league that is sort of like 60th percentile um, like taking that spot because there's some concern about you know do you want to buy him do other teams want to buy him can you flip him or not um uh, I think I was thinking about like uh, Tammy Abraham got mentioned and uh, the Chelsea loan army and a few years ago I think when Alexis Sanchez was coming into his last season uh, Jake Cohen who now works at Chelsea and I were, were talking about it and I was like I will hot swap you Tammy Abraham and Bertrand Traore 
for Alexis Sanchez right now. Like <laughs> no cash, just the two players will save money on on wages uh, because like the young kids will be much cheaper. You can have Sanchez, and he's like, oh, I think Chelsea would do that. Like I would do it. It's like excellent. I'm on board with this as well. Uh, I think Bertrand's done quite well, but needs his shot locations adjusted. Absolutely no problem with Abraham. I think he's probably going to be one of the future England starters still. That's my opinion. 21 years old and it keeps like just punishing the league, just getting better. So Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, to, to think like, yeah, they're still really quite young. <laughs> like I was, I put in a, put an Mbappe chart, up, Mbappe chart up uh, yesterday on the on the on the Twitter, and it was like he's still twenty. This is crazy. It, it seems impossible. <laughs> absolutely nuts. That that uh, Mbappe shot chart was absolutely insane. Actually, it's like yes. thirty-seven like shots from through balls. <laughs> it's like I appreciate like you know, fiercely strong. Uh, you know, this is this is a good way to get him free. He's really really fast. But even so, it's like oh my god, you know this this same trick this one trick will help you win league one as long as you can create a lot of that trick i think the creation of that trick is is the most challenging uh, one of the crazy. most challenging things in football crazy. it does yeah. help to be a sprinter who can also dribble people and hit the ball really yeah, well and being delivered to by you know angel de maria or neymar or whoever it is but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah verati as well this, just from time to time this is all you have to do to be an electric electric striker this is why Usain Bolt is going to have a future career in, in football, right? Yeah, that seemed to peter out somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> right, what else have we got? Potter in at, um, Potter in at Brighton was um, an in- interesting uh, kind of move this week. Uh, you know, I think uh, anyone who's kind of like scratched around in the background of, uh, of football in the last couple of years is well aware that, you know, Graham Potter's growth and emergence... Uh, and then he had a season at Swansea in which he did well to kind of cope with the loss of a lot of players and adjusting back into the, uh, the championship after um, relegation um, and brought his style of football um, to that league. And I think he was certainly competent, probably, you know, did, did as well uh, as well as could be hoped uh, in challenging circumstances. And now Brighton have obviously decided that, you know, they want more of a kind of like, a focus um an integrated kind of it feels like an integrated manager and um uh like recruitment philosophy all kind of like joining up a little bit more you did feel like chris hewton uh, everyone says he's a nice guy but it felt like his his football was a little bit kind of attached to a, a former era and a bit of a kind of survived defensively so yeah, now we've got Potter in there and i'm i'm genuinely fascinated to see how the, how this how this works out for him really yeah, so for those of you who don't know, I have some background with, with Graham Potter. I was invited, it's kind of funny, the, the first meeting that I had with PSG, which was in, I think, May of 2016. Um, on the back of that trip, I was flown to Sweden. Uh, basically, I got this random email from uh, a guy named uh, Kyle McCauley. And he's like, hi, I work with Graham Potter. And we wanted to know if you, you wanted to come up to Oosterson for a couple of days and just talk to us about like what you guys have done at Brentford and, you know, football and this and that. And it was like, I often am very willing to, to take the meeting. I, I think that I learn a lot and I like going to talk to people in football because they always teach me stuff. And, you know, hopefully we teach them a little bit too. But um, I, I just really enjoy the learning process and hearing about other people's problems too because I think that the, that teaches us things that you know we're not necessarily on the front lines at a club right now having been that way at the past but it's nice to, to just hear about stuff um, you know, that, that people are experiencing and Graham Potter is absolutely fascinating um, you know really interested in culture and you, know, you can read the stories and the news stories about the things that he had the players at Oosterson do but the success went alongside of it you know they piled them up from I think the fourth division in Sweden up to the top and then into the Europa League and then made the group stage of the Europa League and the knockout stage of the Europa League and actually beat Arsenal in one of those matches mm-hmm. um, so like you know really quite impressive performance and then you know it was kind of time for him to to move from Oosterson, very, very tiny budget there. Um, back to England. He's an English manager. Um, looks like a beetle. Uh, blonde-haired one. And uh, <clears throat> and so, like, Swansea hired him. And Swansea, my God, I'm not sure that there has been a club that is more of a mess in recent seasons behind the scenes 
than Swansea had been before Graham came along. And I know like Bobby Gardner, a longtime fan of Statsbaum, um, you know, has done a lot of stuff inside of football and outside as well, but a big Swansea fan. And he's heartbroken that Graham left because <laughs> he just he's another great guy, but I think that probably has a level above tactically than Hewton. Very interested in learning, which I always those coaches I think tend to have longer careers, adding new stuff. Bob Bradley's a guy who is very challenging and has like strong opinions, but also goes out of his way to learn more about the game. Uh, Jesse Marsh, Graham, uh, Thomas Frank at, at Brentford is a, another guy. Like, there are plenty of them. Like, it's not like they don't exist. But I think that those guys, Pep is, is like unbelievably classically involved in learning new stuff, either from other people, like he studied Roger Schmidt's um, style a bunch uh, to help potentially improve their press when uh, Schmidt's Salzburg team beat uh, Bayern in in the winter break and then also just trounced Ajax in uh, like that same period in the winter break. And so like all of a sudden, uh, Guardiola is studying up on that. And so like these types of managers are the ones that are really valuable. You cannot think that you know everything about football because football changes and you can learn new things from everybody out there that is having some success in a different way. It doesn't mean that you'll always use it. Maybe you only use it like 5% of the time, but that 5%, you know, gets you maybe a couple extra points a year and that's a big deal. It's no fluke, is it? I mean, you know, hard work pays dividends and, you know, that, that ethos can be applied in all sorts of walks of life. But, you know, certainly in football, keeping on top of like trends and ideas and just being flexible and not just being rooted to you know your one set of ideas I think that's uh, not to inevitably move it to Tottenham but I think despite the fact that Tottenham's metrics have been a little bit skew if this season we've definitely seen like a change uh, in uh, like the way Pochettino has set up his teams he used to be such a kind of rigorous 4-2-3-1 like exponent and uh, in the last 18 months, he's, he's really kind of like experimented with three at the back and diamonds in midfield. And yeah, I mean, I know formations are, let's not get into the formations debate right now, but like, <laughs> that was yesterday. James. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's, he's shown real flexibility in, in like how he set up his team with, and with the players within it. And like I say, that's, you know, that's, that's where you, where you, um, you know, your really smart coaches can, can, can pay off because they, they're a, happy to learn and change how they how they operate that said um sometimes you just hit on something that works really really well so you stick with it uh, maybe guardiola's kind of along those lines but as you say he's, he's not averse to learning on you know going out and getting new ideas Klopp's another manager that's changed this this season i think he's partly off of the back of listening to the the people on the analytics and the you know, director of football side of liverpool yeah yeah, definitely. You know, rain, just raining in the 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 mad the mad energy at times, uh, and yeah, we we you do you do see it. You know, if if you if you can if you can kind of like unpick a team and like understand like what they're doing and what they're changing stuff. There's probably a plan involved. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying there's not plans involved elsewhere, but some teams some teams you can look at and like evaluate, and it can be really hard to work out what they're doing. <laughs> I can't remember if it was Michael Cox this week or somebody else, but someone someone who has like often interesting opinions was talking about the Premier League this year and how like almost every team had a plan, mm. you know, like w- like a tactical plan. You could see what they were doing. There wasn't this mismatch uh, that you'd often seen like as kind of the older school managers have got disappeared, mm. uh, and and so like that actually has really changed the the league and, and made it more competitive and more interesting in, in a lot of ways. But people like tech, um, uh, tactics. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's you really can't argue that the Premier League is basically at least its strongest in in quite a long time, given the fact that four English teams are all in the the finals of the, the Euro- European um, competitions. And, you know, City were knocked out by English teams twice in the last two years, too. So that probably would have been another probable chance. Yeah. All right. So we're going to hop really quickly. Uh, into some transfers, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this more of a buy or sell type. So I'm gonna throw James some on, some whoppers here, and uh, and you can we can we can see what we think. Go on then. All right. So um, Manchester United, we've got Ivan Rakitic for 48 million. Buy or sell? Uh, no, don't do that. <laughs> okay, don't do that. That's sell. Come on, you got to play the game. It's a, it's a buy or a sell. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're sell, selling Rakitic for forty eight million. Okay. Um, Dan James for fifteen million. Yeah, what the hell? 
Bye. Ugh. What the hell? Again, is, I, I like James, James is a rich I, person and Herod's all of a sudden. I like you know, he's, although although I'm not sure whether Dan James is is like the future of uh, you know British football. Um, I I like bigger teams taking these kind of like small ten to fifteen million pound gambles on. It's true. On That's true. Young players, and if you get if you land the big fish. Uh, if they, you know, if they really progress, work hard, and their talent comes forward, then you know these are good deals. So there should always be a couple of those guys in a squad. So I like this at like ten million plus some clauses for playing time that that gets you up to fifteen. Uh, Juan Basaka for fifty million. I think yeah, whoever, whoever wants to buy him should, should try and buy him. He, he looks a real talent, didn't he? So so there you go. I I think you're you're looking at one of the best right backs in the league. Um, you know, as long as you don't want him to cross a lot, I don't think his skill is, is like super in crossing. But he does everything else, and he's young, and he's—I think he's homegrown too. Right, yeah, and I think uh, the, I mean this. Going back to Ferguson again, this is what Ferguson used to do. Ferguson used to like scout his eyes, eyes around. You know, who's the best player on this team? I'll just, right. I'll just, I'll just get him. Like Valencia when Valencia came, and you know, stuff like that. He always used to do that. Just pack out his squad with with players that were who were the best player on X Y team that was somewhere down the league, and it. it generally wasn't a bad idea it was when he did weird things like bebe and stuff that it was less <laughs> less of a good idea but but nani and, and ronaldo yeah, were also yeah you can you, know. you can understand this you've 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 found a you think you've found a rich rich seam to mine so you keep going back uh, um let's see uh leroy sane to bayern what are we looking at 60 million potentially oh it's gonna be more than that surely is it more than that I reckon. I, 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 I didn't see a number. If I'm buying, right, I was thinking about this earlier because I saw this, I think it was in the mirror, or, you know, I saw a Bayern or buying? Buy, buying for buying. <laughs> if I'm buying okay. with, with uh, Ribery and Robin just having retired, I'm, right. I'm spending a vast bud- amount of my budget, if I can, on Sane. Because apparently he hasn't signed a contract. He's been, they, Pep said that they were, they were trying to get him to sign a contract and he's got, I think, two years left or something. And he had, last eighteen months he hasn't signed a contract, right? Um, so we're in this kind of like hinterland between like uh, is he, isn't he? But Sane going to Bayern it would just like be such an ideal solution um, for him, and very much reminds me of when Robin went to Bayern because you know Robin obviously spent time at Chelsea and Madrid, and um, and then ended ended up at Bayern, and like they got so many good years out of him. Um, and I don't know if 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 he's if he's going to re- carry on being a back if Sane's going to be a backup at, 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 or you know rotation player at Man City, I can quite easily see why he should say like, "No, I sold this. I'm going to go to Bayern and just be a starter." Sure. So I get that, and you know he's 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 weeded out of contract, so he's got some leverage there. Um, so Maxi Gomez forty million to Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah. I can't see this happening. I like Maxi Gomez. He's a good finisher type, but I think it's all it's just because of Kane, like being the second second guy in that squad. I mean, I'd I'd probably buy Maxi Gomez if I was like West Ham or something, but possibly not Tottenham just because of the Kane factor. Okay, uh, Costas Manolas thirty million to Arsenal. Hmm. Uh, that thing, so that deal has nearly happened a couple times. That, mm. That's my inside information that that says that. <laughs> pretty sure that that has almost happened and then not happened, and and people were very sad. Not sure. What do you think about that one? Uh, I think it's entirely possible, but I'm also fearful of everything involving Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's one way. It'd be good, like you know, I'm, I'm just from a neutral perspective, it'd be good if Arsenal just went out and. You know, made a completely hands down fantastic. This is the great signing, signing. <laughs> just, just for a bit of fun there, because it feels like they've. they've, I, they've been, I agree. <laughs> just, it feels like it's been a while since they've done one of those. Like when that's when they bought Ozil and when they bought Sanchez, and it was like that is what oh, you want to do. You know, and they, that's true. They were they were pricey, pricey at the time. Thirty four. That million. was a good time period. I like that. But um, but for you know just conceptually, it's like right. Let's let's see if we can get. A, you know, if they went out and put, if they let's say they bought Isco in or James Rodriguez. I mean, no, I, not James. <laughs> someone no. someone like that. Tenge Dumbele. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. I mean, Tottenham keep getting linked with him. Uh, obviously, we'll see about that. But um, everybody's linked with him, and his agent is going to have yeah, a very happy yeah. summer. Yeah, but you know, just 
I mean, Tottenham the same, you know, you've just bought in a hands down. This guy is going to be your central midfielder for the next five, ten years. That would be well received. Uh, I got one more. Go on. Who was it? Where did it go? I've lost it now. <laughs> oh, yeah. What's Eden Hazard? Um, what's his transfer fee going to be when he goes to Real Madrid? Oh, I don't know. Probably like 80 million or something. But I guess that's probably fair. I don't know. If I'm Chelsea, I'm selling him, though. I know, I, I, I'm so torn on Hazard. I was down on him for a while this season, and then he had an electric run of form and, and looked, looked great again. But I just, it just bugs me. I don't... 28 years old. Yeah, yeah. Um, Contract only until next year. Yeah, see, so he's, he's piloted situation. out. He's looking for the last big one. Yeah, I, I think he... You're looking at sixty to seventy with that last year one. Like Chelsea don't want to just let it walk, no. right? So yeah, I, I think that they're getting a discount. Plus, I mean, there's the Courtois thing last year. Chelsea are, are sort of happy to to sort of ship guys on to Real Madrid. So you're looking at sixty to seventy, my guess. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. There'll be lots more to come, and we're only just hitting this the kind of starting traps of. Uh, of transfer season and uh, I'm some, sometimes we'll dig into these a little more like I think last week I was having fun with Philippe Coutinho mm. and uh, and knowing that he was bought for somewhere between 105 140 million depending on who you believe in and what all the clauses are uh, my guess is at least 105 and probably like 110 to 1 115 uh, and then you're like if Barcelona want to get rid of him what's somebody paying for him and that's the thing without Chelsea on the on the kind of list to potentially buy you know hoover up these like talented types that you know not quite fit in somewhere else there aren't many clubs out there that, that are likely to to kind of make that deal i don't think yeah i mean i think 60 to 75 is the top end and it also depends on his wages too like if clubs have to eat wages like that really drives the the overall value down right Gareth Bale. Uh, Gareth if, Bale's if, the one. G- Gareth Bale is is one of them. Although, like Madrid have treated him very unkindly for a guy that has, you know, not played as much as you might want because of injury history, but also like when he's been on the big stage, that dude has fucking brought home the goals and the trophies too, right? Yeah, like some of the most amazing finals goals that you've ever seen. He's been right there. Somehow they, you know, yeah, yeah, somehow, anyway. somehow <laughs> distinctly fallen out of favor. All right. Well, on the Gareth Bale news, uh, when where's he coming back to? And then we'll wrap this up. He's definitely leaving. I don't know because the financial financials just don't add up. Yeah, something like that. Some kind of like year loan with a with a year with a to buy that you're never going to pay or something. <laughs> sure, no, that, that makes sense. So he's, there we are. He's so, go, so buying next year with with Bale on one side and Sane on the other. This is good. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I do actually like that. Yeah, see, <laughs> that's a good. That's going to be fun. All right. See, we, we've just helped Real Madrid, or Real Madrid move Gareth Bale on to Bayern Munich, thereby making Bayern much more likely to win the Bundesliga. First again. stats bomb tip of the uh, of the summer: back Bayern Munich to win. The At some point, we're going to have to have to make Dortmund stronger. <laughs> we'll do that later in the. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody, and uh, we'll be back again next week with more fun stats bomb transfer season podcast. Uh, check out all the cool stuff around the internet. Also on the site, statsbomb.com. We've got a new site launch. It should be very attractive now. And uh, and then the cool travel stuff in the independent this week. Okay, cheers, bye.